Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a prime ministerial library and museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Today on Afternoon Light, I am talking to Peter Drysdale, who is Emeritus Professor of Economics and the head of the East Asian Bureau of Economic Research and East Asia Forum at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. Welcome to Afternoon Light, Peter. Thanks, Georgina. It's nice to be with you. Oh, great to have you on. And today I wanted to talk, well, you've, you've had a fantastically rich and lengthy career, so there's lots of things to talk about. But I did want to start our discussion with a talk about Japan, which is where you started your career as an academic, as a very young undergraduate in the, is it the late 1950s, early 60s? Late 1950s, Late I'm afraid, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what a fascinating time to be studying Japan uh, at a time when Australia really had a very different view from Japan than it does today. Yes, it wasn't the career that most people recommended that I should join at that time. I mean, there's a great suspicion of Japan still and the bitterness after the Second World War was very deep. So... It was a pretty unusual thing as a boy to commit to working on Japan, and that's a long story. But the fact of the matter is that Crawford recruited me into the graduate program when it was being set up in the Research School of Pacific Studies. It was then known at the ANU, and uh, that's where it all started. Uh, and I worked with Crawford uh, in the last 25 years of his career. And this was Sir John Crawford who became the Secretary of the Department of Trade. Yes, he was Secretary of the Department of Trade uh, and quite a young fellow, but a leading light in the reconstruction uh, and post-war economic and border policy strategies, diplomatic strategies of Australia after the war. And Peter, what, so what led you to an interest in Japan uh, in, the, in the late 50s? It began before then, Georgina. Uh, I was born before the Second World War. I grew up knowing about the Second World War I was in. Sydney when the submariners, the Japanese submariners, blew up the Karabakh and tried to attack the American fleet there. Uh, so it was a big thing in my mind. My, my cousin was in Changi prisoner of war camp and uh, I had uh, an aunt whose husband was killed, not in the Pacific, but in Bardia. The first thing she did was take on an Italian prisoner of war who were allowed to be released and help with the war effort then. That was a pretty significant thing. So that was the that was the atmosphere and feeling in my life whilst all this bitterness about the enemy persisted. For some time, I was fascinated by uh, the possibilities of getting to know what the enemy were really like in, in East Asia. Uh, and uh, at every point in my school career, committed to things to do with Japan. And you couldn't do very much of it in those days, I must say. Uh, but I did it in my history and economics work. And I ended up, when the agreement was signed in uh, 1957, that normalised economic relations between Australia and Japan, uh, doing an essay on that, and that led to my graduate work on the Australia-Japan relationship and uh, its past and 
present and future. And Peter, obviously Robert Menzies was Prime Minister of Australia at the time and did you get a sense that he took a, a great interest in Japan? He really had to overcome quite significant domestic opposition to deepening Australia's relationship with Japan and, of course, then signing the deal in '57. He had a clear uh, strategic view of the development of the relationship with Japan, uh, supported in, in, in by uh, his trade minister, McEwen, of course, uh, importantly, and he had a close advice and working relationship that developed between um, Crawford, McEwen and Menzies was critical to taking the Australia-Japan Agreement on Commerce forward when it was a difficult thing to do politically. Um, uh, Menzies copped quite a lot of political flack in that process, uh, particularly the labour-intensive manufacturing sector in Australia. The old Australian Chamber of Manufacturers uh, was very hostile to the agreement and uh, and uh, vilified Menzies at every opportunity in some private meetings, I believe, quite uncivilly. And uh, so it was difficult to take that forward. And the opposition at the time... Uh, opposed the agreement uh, in Parliament. Uh, Whitlam, who later became leader of the Labor Party, was quite ashamed of that and uh, and made a firm commitment uh, to redress that when, when eventually the Labor Party came to power. But uh, Menzies carried that through and was quite firm and resolute in his support for McEwen. And, uh, and uh, McEwen could rely on Menzies totally in the efforts he did to negotiate the agreement that we we negotiated with Japan. And what was your sense of the of the attitude in Japan to this agreement with Australia? Was was there a concerns with the Japanese quite sort of enthusiastic about well, it? Was, it was a, a very important agreement for for Japan. I mean, the context here is in, is is interesting and important to understand. Uh, this is the context in which, in the post-war period, uh, the whole global economic system was being remade under the Bretton Woods arrangements, which the United States instigated. Another thing that's not well known is that the commitment to reconcile with Japan politically and economically was made between Australia and the United States in the middle of the Second World War. Mm. The wartime agreement packs, which delivered the American fleet and military equipment, uh, you know, the equivalent of the Atlantic Charter and then lease arrangements to Australia in the Pacific, which was signed, I think, in September 1942, also had Australia agree to commit to a multilateral system that would be set up after the Second World War, incorporating both victor and vanquished alike. And that was a big a big political change for Australia. It meant moving away from the old British imperial system uh, to uh, an open multilateral, most favoured nation system in trade that treated everybody equally, including ultimately Japan. Now, under those arrangements, uh, of course, uh, the established powers, the victors, had the initial right to discriminate against Japan in trade under Article 35 of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, as it then was. Uh, the only country not to discriminate against Japan after the war immediately was the United States. But Australia was an important target. Uh, 
in Japanese negotiators' eyes uh, to change that regime. Australia became the second country, de facto, under the agreement of 1957, not to discriminate against Japan in its tariff and import control treatment. And so that was a very big diplomatic step uh, and win for Japan. So there's a lot of interest in it. Now, what they thought about it is a different thing altogether because the truth of the matter is that they were very sceptical that Australia would come to the party knowing a little bit about what Australians felt about the experience of the Second World War, the Pacific War in particular, prisoners of war, the Burma Railway and all the rest of it. But in the end, uh, Australia went into those negotiations with the clear aim of eventually uh, affecting the transition whereby Japan would be treated as an equal partner in the international trading system. Uh, and that's what happened through the negotiations. In the 1957 agreement, there was de facto recognition of Japan as a most favoured nation partner. In 1963, that, that was made legal, uh, in effect. Uh, we committed to it legally. So uh, that was the big significance for Japan of the agreement. Uh, and that set in motion a whole process whereby other leading powers, United Kingdom, France and so on, in Europe, ended uh, Article 35 treatment, which discriminated, allowed discrimination against Japan. So it was a big thing. And it led to big concessions uh, on the part of the Japanese for, for Australia in the negotiations, the most important of which at that time, of course, was to bind the tariff on wool imports, which were so important to Australia then, to zero. Mm. And that meant that Japan, as it recovered industrially and its textile industry in particular expanded, included a hefty component uh, of uh, rising wool production and rising wool exports, uh, an important source of demand uh, for growing exports of wool from Australia. And... Uh, uh, at that time, also, um, there was discrimination in the way in which Japan imported foodstuffs, discrimination in favour of the United States under its food aid pl plan in particular, and the beginnings of the breakdown of that discrimination in Japan's treatment of Australian imports started under the agreement on commerce between Australia and Japan too. Peter, how important was the Cold War context to Australia's position on Japan and, of course, the United States. Was there, there a concern, I understand, that um, if Australia wasn't the, the exporting um, raw materials to Japan, particularly energy energy resources to Japan and minerals, that uh, it might get import from communist countries like Russia and, and China uh, and then fall into the hands of the communists and you know, be part of, a, of the sort of in, growth of international communism? Yeah, so after the um, Allied occupation of Japan uh, and the shift to Cold War status between the West and the United States and the Soviet Union, that became an important interest in, in, in Japan, but it really didn't dominate the rationale for the negotiation of the agreement uh, on commerce with, with uh, Japan. I think uh, that was much more driven by important national commercial considerations which saw uh, Japan's recovery and potential growth as a very important new source of of uh, income, export income for Australia. Uh, and those interests were pretty uppermost uh, in the minds of McEwen 
uh, and his official advisors as they negotiated the agreement with, with, with Japan. This context uh, uh, was uh, important more broadly in Australia's buying into the multilateral system too. You know, in effect, uh, what the removal of discrimination against Japan would lock Japan uh, into further entrenchment in the multilateral system. And that was Japan's overarching objective then too. So it was really an important element in the Pacific in securing the international economic security dimension of the post-war settlement. The Americans and the Allies had organised uh, more than anything else that Australia's partnership uh, with uh, Japan flourished within. And in the development of the relationships, the Commerce Agreement, of course, but but the relationship more broadly, what was the role of Sir John Crawford um, in all of this? You've spoken about um, Blackjack well, McEwen, of course, <laughs> and Menzies, but but the the bureaucrats are incredibly important, <laughs> as well as the academics, yeah, it, of course. <laughs> it was it was terribly important. Uh, you know, if anyone was the intellectual architect of the post-war relationship uh, with Japan, it was Crawford. I mean, there's some interesting history there, uh, which is important to understand. You know, Crawford in 1933, when he was really very young, started to articulate the idea that Australia's future lay in the development of its relations with Asia, uh, in particular Japan, China, the Netherlands, Indies with Indonesia and so on in the, in the future as their countries uh, grasped industrialization and grew. Uh, in 1938, Crawford stood up at an Australian Institute of International Affairs meeting, uh, presented a paper in which he said Singapore was a useful defense for Australia against Japan uh, and that uh, we really needed to embrace a Pacific future and craft uh, a pact uh, with uh, East Asia, which secured their economies through our resource supplies and secured our peace uh, through political agreement with them. Uh, and that was a kind of contract which informed his thinking. I, did, I discovered this after I started to think through and work through the whole idea of Asia-Pacific economic cooperation and what that meant, because that's really what it meant. Uh, that uh, this guy had stood up as a 38-year-old, I guess he was then, uh, and articulated all that uh, in the face uh, of uh, the impending war with Japan. Yeah. And he carried those thoughts right through the war and in the negotiations with the Americans over the wartime packs he was involved, he knew that at every point we had to come back to that reference point in our dealings with Japan. So when we signed the peace agreement with Japan in San Francisco, that was incorporated. Our commitment to ultimately most favoured nation treatment was incorporated. And then when we moved to negotiate the agreement with Japan essentially after 56, Kurf had to do all sorts of things to open those negotiations. Uh, you know, he lived near the Japanese ambassador at the time in, in Canberra, and I uh, used to play tennis next door, and he lobbed a tennis ball over the Japanese ambassador's fence so that he could go in and have a quiet and secret talk with the Japanese ambassador about opening negotiations. This sort of stuff went on in Canberra most days. <laughs> And that's how the that's how the negotiations got kicked off. So he was not unactive in this whole process, and he worked cheek by jowl with McEwen, and McEwen was right on side supporting 
for this and taking it forward and seeing the significance of it. Uh, and uh, he and then Westerman later in the, 50, in the 63 agreement uh, did all the hard work. I've got to say, when they actually had the negotiations down here in Canberra, the first uh, uh, Japanese lead negotiators came down, Ushiba, very famous Japanese diplomat, came down. And uh, the Japanese were so surprised by the forwardness in taking this thing up of the Australians that uh, they sent a message back saying that the Australians looked like conceding most favoured nation treatment. And the Japanese foreign ministry said, you better come back home. Uh, the, the, the water's got to you down there in camp. You can't, this can't be right. <laughs> they didn't believe that this was going to happen. So uh, it was... Uh, it was quite an interesting period, uh, but we were quite clear and purposeful and Menzies stood by this with McEwen and Crawford taking this forward and uh, we had a strategy and it was delivered through that agreement and the subsequent agreement and, and of course, also the development of relationship with Japan uh, step by step after that. Peter, in the late 30s when um, Sir John Crawford's standing up at an Australian Institute of International Affairs um, meeting uh, with his with his Asia in economic engagement plan, the sort of integration of Australia into the, these uh, growing Asian economies, how radical was that at that time? Because the ex- expectation of that time is that Australia's uh, preferential arrangements with Britain would remain in place. European Union, European Economic Community didn't exist then. Um, that sort of sense that, that Britain would just turn its back on its Commonwealth countries in terms of an economic relationship uh, wouldn't have been contemplated. Um, the United States, of course, was growing, but it wasn't the huge economic partner it, it then became. That must have been quite a radical thing for Sir John Crawford to suggest, especially as these Asian economies he's talking about were quite um, you know, underdeveloped at that stage. It, it, it was a, a radical idea and it was a difficult idea to explain and to get right. And you know, as you try to explain things that are new to people, how difficult this sometimes is, and especially in a context that's not necessarily receptive. Uh, so at that time... Uh, the idea you know, didn't get automatic warm approval. There was quite a lot of uh, dissent from it. At the same time, there were thinkers and uh, and forces in, this, in Australian society and the community who were receptive to it. Uh, I remember that there's a transcript of this meeting or a semi-transcript of this meeting, and I remember some of the responses which were hostile, but some which were favourable too. I right? um, the Boyer, you know, the father of the Boyer, who was the ABC Boyer, graziers <laughs> uh, uh, from Queensland, uh, uh, they were quite sympathetic to the idea that was being pushed forward. And that would have been a view that perhaps was not uncommon uh, in the farming community, especially the grazing community across Australia at that time. So whilst it was a radical view and it, it was an idea that, could only be framed and conceived, you know, 30, 40 years, 50 years later. Uh, it, uh, it was an idea that resonated in thinking about the situation that Australia faced in its, in its world. And Crawford, the title of Crawford's paper was Australia as a Pacific Power. And so uh, the conception of Australia joining the powers, the United States, uh, in the future Japan and so on, play its role 
in securing the region uh, was the fundamental idea there, securing the region through its openness to international trade, its deep engagement in international trade, uh, and its securing the countries that are inevitably going to be resource deficient in their development strategies. They had to rely on imports of raw material to develop and prosper. Uh, this was an idea that actually, of course, carried a lot of thinking forward subsequently, and uh, it was at the heart of, of the process of setting up the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation arrangements in the 1980s. Uh, before we come to a discussion on APEC, which I am very keen to do, um, tell me, Peter, in your view, if Australia hadn't signed the Commerce Agreement in 57 and then the subsequent agreement in 63, what what would have that meant for Japan in, in terms of its industrialisation? Would it have found another well, partner or, or...? It would have found other partners, but uh, not other partners so well supplied with abundant and accessible and therefore relatively cheap raw materials so as to fuel its industrialization through its big industrialization drive in the 1960s and 70s. It became an incredibly efficient partnership and a very trusted partnership and reliable partnership. So it was central to Japan's successful industrial transformation in the post-war period. And it has, uh, you know, around the region, uh, in subsequent years, been uh, similar uh, in importance uh, to the transformation of South Korea, uh, Taiwan, uh, China, uh, and uh, and that's its role uh, in in the region. It's uh, there are two things that matter in international legal, perhaps three things that matter in international economics. I think, uh, Georgina, uh, the first is is scale. You know, as as countries grow, uh, they become more important to other countries. And so the commitment to growth and development in our region, first from Japan, is the thing that's been so important to Australia's security and prosperity. The second thing that matters is um, what I call complementarity, mm. the structure of endowments, you know, whether you're closely aligned in terms of resource endowments to have a very prosperous trade relationship. And, of course, Australia is complementary to its partners in the region. Japan's the leading example of that. And then there's distance or closeness, closeness in all its forms, not only geographic distance, which is important in the shipment of raw materials in particular, but also, you know, the time zone and the, and the relative closeness that you can secure through agreements and partnerships, such as the agreement on, on commerce and the subsequent agreements uh, with Japan, the agreement on commerce mark two the Treaty of Friendship and Cooperation, the so-called NARA Agreement, and all that's come subsequently. So uh, these uh, three elements are, are what secures, makes rational the hugely efficient economic relationship between Australia, Japan, and other partners in East Asia. And uh, they're fairly fundamental. They don't, they don't shift around dramatically unless you have a war. You see them break down then. Uh, but they don't shift around dramatically. They're the core rationale of Australia's economic and political engagement in Asia and the Pacific. And and so I wanted to now come to APEC, which you were obviously heavily involved in the development of um, in the 1980s and the, the Hawke 
Bob Hawke as, as Prime Minister of Australia, his government really led the charge in establishing the um, Asia-Pacific Economic Community and formulated, of course, many decades before as an idea by Sir John Crawford. How did you, how did you do this? This must have been monumentally difficult. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it's a long story. The idea, of course, was cemented in my mind when I was a graduate student in Japan and I saw up front how Japan was placed uh, in the region and in the world and uh, and uh, how important its trade and economic relationships as Japan industrialised and developed had been around the region and as they developed in the interwar period with Australia in particular and what this meant to uh, the concentration of interests in economic relations between the countries of Asia and the Pacific. So uh, that's where my conception of it began, and working with my professors and mentors there and, and talking through these issues with policymakers there. I had an incredible access in Japan. Was I was only 28 or something when I first went there, pretty young. And, uh, you know, I was, I was introduced to the captains of industry. I had an office in the foreign ministry. I had an office in the, in the finance ministry. I... Uh, had uh, full reign over the, the new IBM 360 computer at the university at which I studied because at the university I was like a little common. Which it was would have, pretty unusual. It would have been the size of huh? an entire room, I guess. Would have. It was the size of an entire room. <laughs> and that's where I did all my numbers. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, that, that brought many insights and brought a lot of support, uh, you know, to people that, including, you know, uh, I'll tell you one story. Uh, Harrier, who was then uh, uh, president of the Bank of Tokyo, but uh, the Bank of Tokyo is a special bank in Japan, and he he had been uh, involved uh, as Japan's rep in the, the International Monetary Fund. And I had a meeting with him one day and uh, talking about the development of Asia and the Pacific and so on. And as I was walking out, he patted me on the back and said, give my regards to Harold. And I thought, it was Harold. <laughs> and then I realised it was Harold Holt, our then Prime Minister, that he wanted me to give it. I was busy. For some weeks after that, I was worried about how I was going to give his regards to Harold. <laughs> Harold Holt, and I got I think I managed it somehow. <laughs> so that was a kind of milieu that I was in. There were only 35 graduate students in all of Japan then. Can you imagine? Amazing. And uh, yeah. I was one of two Australians there this after the war. Uh, the other was Hal Balako, a, a Monash graduate who subsequently became professor of Japanese history at Harvard. Uh, and myself, I was at, he was at Tokyo University and I was at uh, Hitotsubashi University. Uh, and uh, those uh, opportunities um, gave me a big insight into the way in which, you know, top people in Japan were thinking and, uh, you know, you inevitably became in later years members of study groups and so on. And in particular, the study group set up by later Prime Minister Ohira, who was actually a graduate of my old university in Japan <laughs> and a big thinker, uh, to think through the whole Asia Pacific issue and economic cooperation and how uh, that might be developed, uh, was, uh, the big part of the engagement on that, that issue with Japan and the partnership with Japan in delivering that was really very important. 
And we had infinite discussions around the region, uh, workshops and so on from the 1970s through the 1980s, uh, through the big uh, so-called Pacific Community Seminar that Crawford organised, uh, Fraser Blessed and Ohira Blessed here at the ANU, which laid out the framework for how we might manage economic cooperation in Asia and the Pacific and brought all the potential partners together. Uh, except one or two. China wasn't involved in that stage, although we did invite China and Taiwan to a public meeting. Uh, and then uh, uh, later Crawford and I and actually Ross Garner went off uh, to China in December 1980 to, uh, to explain it all to the Chinese as well and the Taiwanese separately. Uh, but, uh, and they came on board in the informal process that was set up after that. It was a precursor to the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Initiative, um, the so-called Pacific Economic Cooperation Council, which uh, the Pacific Community Seminar at the ANU was uh, essentially deemed the first meeting of. So uh, that process, uh, it involves a lot of, uh, it involved a lot of um, one-and-a-half-track, second-track diplomacy, uh, never-ending meetings, persuasions, you know, bringing thinkers in countries that are absolutely hostile to openness in trade, bringing them around to the view that it was in the interests of these countries, not immediately, but step by step over time, to open up their economies and prosper through international trade, as Japan had done uh, and was doing, uh, and as the region could do more fulsomely if they had a more open economic system. And those ideas gradually took hold and were entrenched in the APEC process itself when the APEC process got set up, uh, but had been being entrenched in the Pacific Economic Cooperation Council process uh, from essentially 1983 onward before the APEC process got set up. Which countries did you find were the, the most difficult to bring on board, Peter? Well, I think uh, uh, in, a, in the event uh, they were critical to this process, but uh, uh, the uh, Indonesia was, the, in a sense, the biggest challenge because it was the most important country to bring on board through the ASEAN process. Uh, the most difficult country, though, wasn't Indonesia and ASEAN. It was the Philippines because the Philippines was fairly random in its diplomacy. Uh, and I remember one uh, leading uh, Filipino diplomat, uh, Madame Del Mundo, her name was, <laughs> uh, and was really quite... Uh, tried to tear the whole initiative down from the beginning, <laughs> but they gradually came on board and we had some highly uh, strategic uh, Filipinos involved in the process like uh, Cesar Barata, the former finance minister and prime minister in, in the Philippines playing a leading role. So, you know, step by step, uh, all countries came to the party uh, and uh, uh, and saw, saw the rationale and interests in cooperation among this group of countries. And with a face uh, that position, that cooperation uh, with a global outlook, not a narrowly regional outlook, one that really saw the importance to that group of countries of the multilateral system, non-discrimination, and the gradual step-by-step progress of countries from different levels of development. Peter, fast forward 40 years or 30, 40 years, obviously we, we are here today with a, 
Not from now, I trust. No, no, well, well, I'll speak to you in a, another few decades and we can see how things have gone. But today, 2022, the Asia-Pacific region, Indo-Pacific as, as some like to call it, um, now um, incredibly prosperous, I mean really the engine room of the global economy. Um, but we do have big, big geopolitical challenges with China Um we Australia has benefited hugely from a, a very prosperous relationship with China, um, supplying supplying it mainly with raw materials, and um, we've obviously in the last few years um, met with some stumbling blocks, some um, trade embargoes against Australian exports to China because of various troubles in the relationship. How can trade? Good trade relations, a good rules-based order, contribute to avoiding those geopolitical problems. Are there lessons we can well, learn from the early APEC days? Yeah, that uh, and also and also the architecture that was set up in the middle of the Second World War, uh, the architecture that uh, was translated in those. Uh, wartime pacts between Australia and the United States, but were a reflection of the broader global initiative that the Allies took to establish the post-war international economic system there. That's, they're the fundaments uh, that allow this kind of relationship to be stable and develop in the way that it's developed in the post-war period alongside uh, the military security dimensions of that architecture. Uh, and uh, the military security dimensions of that architecture weren't unimportant in opening up the relationship with Japan. It was the ANZAS agreement with the United States that gave us assurance that uh, Japan would be kept in its box politically after the war and wouldn't pose a threat to us militarily if we opened up a significant economic relationship with it. And so... These political arrangements are important to complement uh, the economic agreements that secure openness in international trade and investment. So today, you know, I keep encouraging return uh, to that framework uh, that the United States set up. Now, you know, a good a, a part of that problem is today, of course, are a consequence of the conflict or strategic competition, call it what you will in the relationship between the United States and China and uh, how that spills over into our interests, uh, political, military uh, and uh, economically in the region. The big shock to our system really came uh, with the trade war between the United States and China. Uh, of course, uh, there is uh, a tendon issue of uh, China's feeling politically more confident and uh, uh, building its uh, security uh, apparatus up in a way that uh, uh, felt uncomfortable, especially for the United States, but uh, and has to be dealt with. But uh, the big shock really came uh, to yeah, through the the trade the Trump trade war, and the settlement there wasn't a settlement uh, that was consistent with the rules based system at all. Well, the settlement there was a settlement that gave. United States preferred treatment. This is a so-called phase one deal, which Biden has come back to, I might say, on his uh, USTR's tie has come back to. The settlement gave uh, US exporters preferred treatment in the Chinese market uh, uh, and uh, and managed trade around that. 
basically, and uh, third parties like us who are supplying some of these commodities to the Chinese markets to the devil, basically. There's no most favoured nation treatment here at all. So uh, that's a big crack in the system. When the two biggest players in the system disregard its rules like that, you've got a problem. But, of course, you know, there are a lot of other countries that are heavily invested in its rules, including all the countries of Asia and the Pacific. So uh, we have to push back and, and keep uh, as much as we can the rules-based system, which, of course, in trade is centred on the WTO framework together. And that means reform of that system and carrying that forward and working with our partners who are similarly invested in it to take it forward and bringing uh, the United States and China back into a partnership which respects that system also. That's not going to be easy. That's not going to be easy with uh, the initiatives to be coupling both sides around now and with friendshoring and all that. But uh, the truth of the matter is that the system's held up fairly well. And even as we were embargoed by the Chinese in our trade access to key commodities, the barley and wheat and wine and so on, uh, Cole, uh, uh, what saved us in that situation was that we had the multilateral system working and we could ship those commodities, and not all of them, but most of them off to other markets and compensate for the Chinese market through that process. That's the system that protects us. Uh, and we want China to come back to that system and, and, uh, and walk back, uh, from using that weapon. Uh, because that's a threat to the system as well. And that needs to be made perfectly clear to China uh, as we move forward in the relationship with China. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of work to, to be done before we get to that point. Uh, but I think uh, that's that's the strategic objective we need to pursue, to re-cement uh, our region's interest, including China's interest in the multilateral system. Now, we made some progress on that. Uh, this year, really, because uh, you know, the one thing we've managed to do in the face of all these uncertainties and difficulties uh, in the in geopolitics and in the international trading system is negotiate the so-called Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which includes China, which provides a base, really, for cooperation on cementing uh, some of these principles down in our region in a way that will also support doing that in the multilateral system. We're going to have a ministerial and a leaders meeting at RCEP in November this year. That'll be an opportunity to see what the colour of people's money is uh, as they uh, bed that process down and seek to make RCEP an effective force also uh, in uh, strengthening the multilateral system. Is there is there anything more Australia can do, though, to improve the state of play between, well, at least Australia and China, but we're also, as you say, affected by the arrangements between the US and China? Well, I think there is a lot Australia can do and that we haven't yet done, frankly. Uh, uh, I think the strategic importance of the ASEP agreement is probably underestimated. We've got the Chinese lining up uh, to... Uh, try to join the CPTPP, which is the arrangement that we hope the United States could join initially. Uh, and uh, we've got to see what the colour of their money is, but there's every reason why we should engage, given that they've put themselves forward on this and negotiate the hard issues in that, uh, even if that takes a very long time, even if that game is a forever game, because that forever game 
is really at the forefront of the interests of the United States in getting a better deal out of China too. Uh, so I'm sure that the Chinese weren't unaware that trying to negotiate these issues through with Australia was going to be helpful to, it, to try to negotiate these issues through with the United States as well. So there are a couple of things we can do, but also we can be a more active partner with uh, our countries in the region, including Indonesia, which uh, surprisingly to some has been very active on WTO international trade reform issues and is almost certainly going to take that issue forward again as it did in Osaka a couple of years ago uh, through the G20 meeting uh, in Bali uh, later this year too. So we need an active engagement with uh, Indonesia and the parties that are party to trying to protect the WTO, the 17 members of the multi-party interim arbitration arrangement, which is uh, uh, a stopgap measure to uh, uh, have a dispute settlement process around the WTO, which has been blocked by the United States. So these actions are really important. And they're at the center of our, not only our economic diplomacies and its interests, but also at the center of, of securing us politically more broadly. Some big challenges ahead, though, especially when you consider the um, the domestic context for the major players. I mean, China, obviously, they have their own domestic issues, um, but, but the United States, where free trade is not such a popular idea as it once was, and in fact, there seems to be bipartisan opposition to trade liberalisation uh, these days, which is... Which is very hard for a country like Australia that has uh, lived well, and breathed trade liberalisation. <laughs> I think the one bit of good news out of out of the United States, Georgina, is that the US Congress is predisposed to do nothing now, and if they do nothing, at least they won't. <laughs> 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 um, but um, some concluding remarks, Peter, about that eternal fight for trade liberalisation, because. Um, it's it's easy to make the case uh, to protect your domestic markets because people sort of intrinsically think, well, you know, we should manufacture things here, we should have our own industries here, and you know, why would you know why would we ruin, say, a car industry just just you know just just to allow another country to benefit from a car having a car industry and selling their cars to us? But but trade liberalisation is. Is, it's a tough argument to make. The broader, of course, the broader benefits are, are clear, but it always is a battle to be fought, isn't it, for policymakers and political leaders and, and diplomats, is, of course. It is a huge uh, battle and it's a continuing one and, uh, and it's a more difficult one now in the circumstances we face today. Not only uh, did we have uh, the global financial crisis put pressure on on openness to trade earlier on. And, and that's a good part of the story in the United States backing away from an open trade strategy. Uh, but now we've had the COVID crisis and all the uncertainties about the uh, security of supplies of various kinds, not only medical supplies around that. And then there's a the geopolitical issue. And that's been exacerbated by the war in Europe, the Russian invasion of Ukraine now with the application of sanctions on Russia and worries about how sanctions will be used in future and the security dimensions of trade. So all these things are now playing in to the mix uh, as forces against openness in international trade. 
But I must say that uh, in Australia, you know, given its economic and structure and, and its political system to some extent, uh, the the central interest of openness to trade, uh, there'll be weaknesses and pushbacks in various ways, but the central interest in openness to trade, I think it's pretty well understood. Uh, that's fairly clear. Uh, and I think one of the big protections in keeping openness to international trade for countries like Australia is that you have an effective uh, system, welfare system in effect, that compensates the inevitable losers that will be uh, through openness to international trade effectively. It's not only a system that you know, protects declining industries that are exposed to trade competition and stuff like that. It's a system that ensures that are effective income transfers across households to support uh, um, households that fall on bad times, uh, not only through trade shops, but through other shops in the economic system. One of the things that you see in studies of politics and economics is that countries which have such systems in place are more disposed uh, to positive thinking about open trade. The Scandinavian countries, Australia and New Zealand fall into that camp. The United States doesn't because it hasn't got that system in place. So this is a strength we have. Uh, we have a natural and powerful interest in trade, especially with our neighbours in the region. Over two-thirds of our trade is with them both ways round. Uh, and uh, protecting that, I think, is seen by the Australian community right across the board, by and large, as a fairly important strategic interest for Australia. And we've got some systems in place we ought to make sure we husband them carefully and keep them in place carefully that protect us against shocks of various kinds, including trade shocks. And the system has worked fairly well. We've got they, they, that, those systems include a, a flexible exchange rate system that taken us through massive trade changes, you know, with big rises in our terms of trade and big falls in our terms of trade, and they're being distributed well across the community because we've got those systems in place. So we can't underestimate those systems and the value they have to making our economy and our polity work fairly well. Uh, well, that's a great note to finish on, Peter. Thank you so much for joining me on the Afternoon Light podcast today. It's been a, a fascinating discussion and uh, I wish you all the very best for the next few decades in your, your fight for <laughs> regional <laughs> trade engagement, economic engagement and cooperation. Um, lots of, uh, lot, lots more challenges ahead of us and hopefully some, some bright sparks too. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure, Georgina, and I see that you're still a great optimist. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you. Thank you.